Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the life of the church and our best laid plans of mice and men as we started this series was that I would kick it off by looking at the church generally and then Chris and then Mike and Chris would look at Gateway specifically. However, I I did part one and life intervened between part one and part two and um, so Chris and Mike stepped in and did part two and part three and here am I now doing uh, part four. So when I started the series uh, several weeks ago, I was to do two messages, and uh, I, I was doing them out of the book of Ephesians, or, or basically using the book of Ephesians as a launching pad. In the book of Ephesians, Paul gives us seven pictures, metaphors, realities actually, of what the people of God actually are. And we are called the church, the called out ones, we're called his body, we're called his workmanship, his poema. Uh, We are his family, his temple, his bride, and his army. Those are all within the book of Ephesians. And my plan was to take two of those pictures and develop them in a little more detail. And the two that I chose were the body and the family. And so in part one, I looked at the body. I was going to look at part two, the family. I am now, okay? Toward the end of the series, I want to talk to you about the image or the reality of God's people as a family. And there is no image that occurs more often in the scriptures than us being described as a family. In the two pictures, the body and the family, and actually with the other ones that I mentioned as well, there's one thing that stands out uh, predominantly, and it's the idea of the corporate nature of the people of God. It's about corporiety and not individuality. It's about we and, and not me. Now, that's a bit of a reality check for us in the 21st century West because we live in a culture that is characterized by radical, expressive individualism. We live in a culture of our personal rights and choices and the reality is that my personal rights and my happiness takes precedence more often than not over any group which I choose to belong to. Our mantra is you do you and I'll do me and we'll both follow our dreams, our passions, and our hearts. And although we rarely verbalize this as blatantly, God help anybody who stands in the way of our personal fulfillment and our personal happiness. And the idea that we might possibly sacrifice them for the benefit of a superior or a more expansive purpose doesn't enter the hearts or minds of most of the people in our culture. The cultural tune of radical individualism has been playing in our ears full volume for all of our lives, and most of us are completely oblivious to the fact that we dance to it. Perhaps you're not convinced? Let me try and illustrate it. Let me do a little experiment with you, if I may. How many of you saw the movie The Titanic? Don't be afraid, it's not a trick question, okay? So the majority of you, okay? I didn't look over here. How many? Most of you saw it? Yeah, of course you did. Made in 1997, directed by James Cameron, it was one of the most costly and most lucrative movies ever produced. It won 11 Oscars, which put it on the same level as the classic Ben-Hur. 
And that movie profoundly illustrates what happens when our Western individualistic relational priorities collide with the values of a more traditional society. Now, for those of you who perhaps haven't seen the movie, it centres around two main characters. Jack, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, a scrappy but charming street kid who's on the ship because he won a pass in a poker game. Rose is the other main character, played by Kate Winslet, and she belongs to the upper echelon of British society. She's engaged to be married to a man from her own social stratum with whom she is travelling in first-class accommodation. As the story unfolds, we see that Rose has absolutely no romantic attachment to her fiancé, and we soon learn why, because he's a first-class bore, an arrogant, obnoxious snob. In a memorable scene in the movie, Rose's mother is chatting with Rose and reminds her that this arranged marriage is absolutely vital for the best interests of the extended family. The impending marriage represents the only hope of Rose's family maintaining its wealth and preserving its social status, for it seems that Rose's father had previously squandered away the family fortune. And so Rose has been set up with a man for whom she has absolutely no affection in order to guarantee the honourable future of her extended family. As the movie unfolds, one evening Rose meets Jack and the encounter sparks a flame of a romantic fling that serves as the main storyline for the rest of the movie. And we see Rose caught in a quandary. She obviously loves Jack, but she's engaged to this highly unappealing man whom she's obliged to marry for the family's sake. And the question is, who will she choose? Well, of course, Jack. If Rose had chosen otherwise, the movie simply would not have worked for the millions of Westerners who've paid to follow the tragic tale. And we Westerners are quite unmoved about the potential social dilemma confronting Rose's extended family. And our sympathies lie with the heroine's own personal happiness. And as, Rose is telling, uh, as Rose's mother is explaining about the importance of and the need for this loveless marriage, we want to stand up and call out, follow your heart, Rose, dump the rich jerk, ignore your mother's manipulative advice. Rose, you do you. Let your family take care of themselves. So, okay, hands up. Who wanted Rose to turn away from Jack and go back to her obnoxious fiancé? Not a hand. Of course not. None of us wanted that. Let's continue with our imaginative exercise. Imagine that, this we, this, that we could show this movie to an audience in first century Palestine, obviously with Aramaic, sub, uh, Aramaic subtitles. Without doubt, that audience would have had a very, very different reaction to that movie than we do. They would have been absolutely appalled to discover that Rose would even contemplate sacrificing the good of her extended family on the altar of her personal relational happiness and satisfaction, let alone actually doing it. They would have found Rose's fling with Jack both risky and foolish. In fact, a betrayal of the very vilest form. In this culture, loyalty to the family trumps personal happiness and satisfaction by the proverbial country mile. And the movie would never have worked in that cultural setting. There would have been a mass walkout. In fact, 
that movie actually doesn't work in most of the world's cultures, even in the 21st century. It only resonates with our expressive, rad uh, radical, individualistic Western culture. I recall hearing a conversation, or hearing of a conversation between a young Western woman and an Iranian woman who were both students together at a Western university. They were having coffee together and they were discussing the wedding plans of the young Iranian. And she was incredibly excited about an upcoming event in which she was to marry a man whom her parents had picked out for her years before. The Western girl was astonished. She was about to marry a man that she didn't even know. And the Western girl began to extol the benefits of her Western freedom. She could choose her own spouse. She didn't even need her parents' input, their permission, or even their approval to marry. Now it is the Iranian's girl, her turn to be absolutely astounded. And she said, how could you possibly act independently of your parents and contract a marriage that may not contribute to the long-term well-being of your extended family? Two totally different worldviews. Ironically, the Iranian bride will in all likelihood end up as happily married as the Western girl, by the way. Now, it's really hard for us to understand and to accept that the New Testament doesn't view family life in quite the way that we Westerners do. We are attuned to what we call the nuclear family. It used to be mum, dad and the kids. Increasingly, there are multiple variations of that accepted as being normal. Whatever the composition, however, it generally amounts to a relatively small independent unit. And when we come to the scriptures, we naturally tend to... Uh, impose our Western worldview on the biblical texts and view family portions through that lens, and we often miss the, the truths that the scripture is intending to impart. The biblical worldview is not a Western worldview, and it exhibits what anthropologists call a collectivist view of reality. And in such a worldview, a person perceives them to be a member perceives themselves to be a member of an extended family group and responsible to that group for their actions. Individuals are embedded in that family group, an extended group, and it embraces, they embrace family and extended goals and objectives. The extended family takes precedence over the individual. Now, even hearing that, we are liable to squirm somewhat uncomfortably at that point. And to us, that kind of structure is overly restrictive, if not downright oppressive. And you might be sitting there thinking, Don, I, I hope that you aren't going to tell me you're going to try and turn the clock back to the first century. Well, the reality is I'm not sure if I would, or could, I, I would even if I could, because the reality is I'm as marinated in the Western individualism as you are. My problem, however, our problem together, is that my primary commitment is to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. And I have to face the fact that he seemed to unequivocally affirm a more collectivist approach to life and family than perhaps I'm comfortable with. When Jesus launched his mission to rescue the world, he chose family as the defining metaphor to describe you and I, his followers. And the family of his day and understanding required, demanded the highest commitment of individual loyalty, relational solidarity, and personal sacrifice of any social entity in that world. Family 
came first. All other commitments came a distant second. If you study ancient history, you will perhaps be surprised to observe that loyalty to siblings was valued above loyalty even to a spouse. Perhaps some of you being history students, you might know the struggle, the power struggle and rivalry between two Romans, two Roman generals, Mark Antony and a man called Octavian, who later became the Caesar. Now, Antony was married to Octavia's uh, Octavian's sister, her name was Octavia, which is a, gets a bit confusing, but civil war broke out between them and uh, we Westerners imagine given that choice Octavia would have stayed with her husband. That would be normal in a Western setting. But when Octavia was forced to choose, she leaves her husband and returns to her brother's side. Blood runs deeper than marriage and deeper than the marriage uh, bond. Um, and, and relationship between siblings in that setting takes priority. Now again, I'm not making any comment about that. I'm just saying that is the way it was. For persons in Mediterranean antiquity, even marriage took a back seat priority-wise to a more important family relationship, the bond between brothers and sisters. A good marriage, of course, was a priority, but it was not the priority. Now again, I can imagine you saying, well, Donis, are you suggesting that that should be the way it is for us? And, and no, the answer is no, I'm not suggesting that. Like you, however, I'm starting to struggle with the implications of some of this. All I'm saying at this point is I think the biblical view of being part of God's family might be considerably more challenging uh, than we have allowed it to be in our Western thinking and setting. You know, we, we tip our hat to the idea that we're part of God's family, but for most of us it doesn't make a whole lot of difference to our lives. The idea of being part of God's family, being our primary loyalty, simply doesn't register for most of us. The idea of sacrificing for it, placing it before our own wants and plans and happiness, sounds dangerously cult-like almost to us. When you read the scripture, Jesus came along and radically reconstituted the ancient family and its bonds and loyalties. And on one occasion, he must have shocked the living daylights out of his listeners when he said, if a man doesn't hate even his father and mother, relatively speaking, in terms of following me, they can't be my disciple. They have to put me first. I am reconstituting what family is about. On one occasion, it's found in Matthew chapter 12, it says, while Jesus was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers came and stood outside, asking for him to come out and speak with them. Then someone said, look, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to have a word with you. But Jesus looked at him and said, let me introduce you to my true mother and brothers. Then gesturing to his disciples around him, he said, look, look closely, this is my true family. When you obey my heavenly Father, that makes you part of my true family. Jesus reconstitutes this idea of family around himself. Now, while he replaced the ancient family with his own reconstituted family, one thing I don't think he did was lowered the bar. And I don't think he expected anything less in terms of loyalty and commitment from its members. The early church certainly seemed to view life as a family in a strong collectivist sense. And when the disciples called one another brother or sister, it wasn't because they were being overly religious or they forgot their names. You know, in, in church circles we often go, hey, uh, brother, 
because I can't remember your name and brother becomes an easy way of getting myself off the hook. Or sometimes we're just a bit religious, brother and sister. They were not doing that. They were talking, brother and sister, and were drawing on the whole constellation of behavioral expectations and values associated with the sibling relationship of a very strong collective worldview. In such terms, brother and sister, meant immeasurably more to them than it does to you and I. And I suspect that if we could kind of have an amplified translation of brother and sister, it would look like we are family and I will be loyal to you, and you can rely on me, and I will have your back, and I, if necessary, will sacrifice my well-being, and I will put family interests above my own personal goals, dreams, and happiness. That starts being radical, and it requires you and I as Westerners to stop and maybe go, wow, Selah, let me think about that. I find it sobering and challenging. Given that we can't, and actually to be truthful, I'm not sure that I want to turn the clock back, we do have to think about what does that mean for us in the 20th century West? How can we presently do family a whole lot better than we do? We could probably talk about this for a long time, but let me suggest three very practical family values that we would do well to consider and perhaps even better to embrace. Very simple. Number one, families share their stuff with one another. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 says, Christ sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just to be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. Wow. Families share their stuff with one another. Now, both Chris and Mike spoke to this, so I won't labor it. Sufficient to say, if you are part of this family and aren't contributing to its support in some way, whether it be time, energy, or money, then I think something's amiss. Sila. Number two. Families share their hearts with one another and they are there for one another. In a family, we have people to bounce our choices, ideas and problems off. We have people to do life with. In family, if I have a problem at 3 a.m. in the morning, I've got somebody that I can ring and, and they'll be there for me. You know, so many people in our culture have nobody like that. They don't know who to ring at 3 o'clock in the morning. So many people in churches don't have that, and I think that's absolutely tragic. The problem is that we're socialized to be independent. We're socialized to be independent relationally, emotionally, financially, and even geographically. In our culture, we have made leaving home the goal of our parenting process. We pride ourselves on being subject to no one and not having to rely on anybody else. That precious freedom has come at a tremendous emotional cost for many, many people. Faced with decisions that in the past would have at the very least have family input, if not you know, significant discussion around, we make those big calls in isolation. Who I will live with, where I will live, what I will spend my life doing. Those were family debates in the ancient world. We make those calls in isolation, and we often pay an incredible price for that freedom. Simple example, young parents probably suffer as much as anyone from our isolation. 
Ancient cultures understood that raising a task, raising a child was a task for which no parent is adequately prepared. And collectivist societies recognize this, and there is always a strong support network in the extended family. In our individualistic cultures, we are often relationally and many times geographically separated from a family, and the fallout can be catastrophic for young mums and young parents. Depression, anxiety, suicide, we're told, is rampant among that group of people. Our freedoms, as intoxicating and as exhilarating as they can be, have pushed many people over the edge emotionally. Sociologist Robert Bella notes that the origin and popularity of clinical psychology can be directly traced to increasing the increasing individualistic slant of Western relational values. And we are reaping the consequence of the stress of decisions that were never meant to be made and lives that were never meant to be lived in complete isolation. You know, people in our culture, actually, people in our churches regularly make life-changing decisions without any recourse to outside discernment or wisdom. For most Christians, at least in past history, that would be a stunning omission. There's lots of groups that have what they called, they called it various names, but they would have what they called a discernment committee. And the idea of a discernment committee was that when you faced or were faced with a big decision, you could call on a group of people whom you loved and uh, they loved you, you trusted them, and you would sit down with them and you'd work through the pros and cons of the decision that lay before you. They would take time to pray with you, question you, seek the Lord, and seek to discern what kind of direction you might take given those choices. Now, I suspect that half of us wouldn't have access to that group of people, and the other half wouldn't listen to them if they did. We, we aren't interested in that. We want to make our own calls and our own choices. But family was meant to be done in the context where you can both support and be supported. I said this morning, I want to say to you again, this isn't a message in an attempt to bolster our connect groups. I'm not saying if you aren't part of a connect, you, you should be. That, that's not where I'm going with this argument. What I'm saying is you need to have a group of people. It might be your connect group. It, it might not be. You might have another group of people that you love and trust and are doing, faith, uh, 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 doing your faith journey with. I, I don't mind. I'm not trying to organize your life. I'm just suggesting that you need to have that kind of group. You, you need to have someone that you can call at 3 a.m. in the morning. Thirdly, families are places where we stay, embrace the pain, and grow with one another. That's not easy. Apparently, uh, as the story goes, God once sent two angels out to planet Earth to see how his people were doing. And they went from country to country and city to city and returned with less than a positive report. They said 99% of the people they encountered were independent, selfish, obnoxious sinners. And there was only 1% of the people that were doing well, staying on the straight and narrow way and pleasing God. God was a little more than discouraged at this report and his first inclination apparently was to deal, to deal severely with those who had turned his back on them and he considered unleashing a flood but then remembered he'd promised not to do that again. He thought for a while and apparently came up with a much more positive approach to the dilemma. He decided to withhold his anger against the majority and send a wonderfully encouraging email to the 1%. And this 1% got the email and it had all kinds of promises and affirmation and kindness that only he could provide. Do you know what that email said? You don't. You never got it either. 
I was really hoping one of you got it so that at least I could know what it said because I didn't get it either. And the point I'm trying to make with that silly story is we're all sinners. We're all broken. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the community of God is made up concurrently of both saints and sinners. And I don't mean there are some saints and there are some sinners, but there are saints and sinners. I remember going to a conference one time and the speaker got up and he said, good morning, saints. And we all said, good morning. And he said, good morning, sinners. And we were all quiet. No one was going to cough up, you know. And he just, and he started to unfold. He said, hey, concurrently, we are both saints and sinners. By the end of the conference, he got up and he said, good morning, saints. And we all said, good morning. Good morning, sinners. Good morning, we all said. We are concurrently saints and sinners. And the church is a broken, fragmented place. If you're looking for perfection, if you're looking for beer and Skittles, church isn't the place. We're broken. And we're getting well by the grace of God. And it's not always easy to stay in the midst of both your and other people's brokenness. But I want to tell you something. Your potential fruitfulness and growth possibly depends on it. We sang just before about uh, new wine. Lord, dig up the soil, plant the vine, get new wine out of me. You imagine planting a vine and then six months later saying, I'm going to move it. And you move it. And, and get it all established. And then a year later you decide, yeah, I'm not going to move it again. The chance of fruitfulness and the chance of new wine from that vine are zilch. When people constantly move from one fellowship to another on the basis of relational difficulties or I don't like this or I'm not comfortable with the carpet or, you know, I mean, um, I don't like the music and, and they go from one place to another to another. Sometimes for trivial reasons. I've had people say to me, oh, I, I do it about every four or five years, Don. I just get bored. People do that in marriages too, you know. It's not healthy. And the chance of fruitfulness really depends on you setting your roots into the ground and working through difficulties, sticking it out. Families share their stuff together, families share their hearts together, and families stick together through good times and bad times, they stay. And they work through the pain and they grow. You know, the whole idea of family is very, very different to the way you and I see it. And as disciples of Jesus, boy, it's challenging to be confronted with what the Bible actually says about your brothers and sisters. I don't think we can simply push that aside as Westerners and say, well, we value our individualism. And I'm not saying that those cultures had it all right and we've got it all wrong. Anybody who's been in collectivist cultures know that there are some really broken things about that too. We, we've got to struggle to put away our worldview, to embrace what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus seems to think that commitment to his family is really, really important. And I'll leave that with you to think it over. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.